Second Kings chapter 22. We are getting close to the end of Second Kings. And then when we're done, we'll start over in First Chronicles and do it all over again. <laughs> A little bit of different focus in, in First and Second Chronicles than the Kings, but similar material. But for now, we are still finishing up Second Kings. So Second Kings 22. Remember the whole theme of 2 Kings, as, long, as well as 1 Kings, is covenants and character. God's faithfulness to His covenant with His people, no matter what, whether they were faithful or not, His character, which never wavered. He was exactly as He said He would be. And then, of course, God's people, sometimes they kept the covenant, sometimes they didn't. Sometimes their character was good, sometimes it wasn't. And Judah's last two kings, they have not had good character, and they have violated the covenant. They were wicked. Manasseh was so bad that God sent prophets to warn that judgment was coming. He'd remove them from the land. And then his son Ammon was so bad that two years into his reign, his own court officials killed him in an attempted coup. So that the kingdom that Josiah, Ammon's son, the kingdom that he inherits is in a bad state. And when you combine this with Josiah's age, that he's only eight years old when he takes the throne, it kind of looks like Judah's doomed. How can an eight-year-old lead a nation to restoration? Well, by having a tender heart toward the Lord. So chapter 22, verse 1, we're going to look at Josiah's tender heart. It says in verse 1, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Jedida, the daughter of Adaiah of Boscath. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, and he walked in all the way of David his father, and turned not aside to the right hand or to the left. And so, like the writer is in the habit of doing in these first couple of verses, he gives us a summary of Josiah's reign. He starts off by explaining its length. It started when he was eight, and it lasted for 31 years. This is only four years younger than when his grandfather, Manasseh, became king. And yet, if you've read ahead and you look at the tracks of Manasseh and Josiah, they could not have been more different in their approach to leading the nation. I think it's important to recognize that you had two barely middle grade kid and then an adolescent, and they both took two different paths. When we analyze that, that's interesting because, you know, normally, well, not normally, I, I just, I hear a lot of parents when kids are young, they'll excuse wicked behavior by saying, well, they're just young. But clearly, these two young individuals made very different choices, right? So they were capable of making the choices that they made. Israeli families included their children in spiritual activities back then as early as two to three years old. When they turned five, they began formal instruction in the Scriptures. So when we look at that, they saw the idea of participation, responsibility, and righteousness and spiritual things as something that occurred at a very young age. Now, I don't know what kind of instruction these two kings received from their parents or other individuals, but what I find interesting is the Bible does not let them off the hook because they were young. It doesn't. And that means we should not let our kids off the hook because they're young as it concerns their behavior, and the choices that they make. Listen, the only difference between a child and an adult is that as it concerns learning, 
is that children may not grasp complex problems immediately. So for example, like if you've got an engineering degree, you've got a lot of training that allows you to maybe face a situation you haven't faced before and to build on what you have. A young child, if placed in the same situation, is going to be completely lost because they have nothing to build on. So they do not grasp maybe complex problems immediately, but the opposite that thinking they're dumb is a mistake. Kids are not dumb. Children are not stupid. In fact, every study shows they learn things faster than most adults. And once they understand it, they master those concepts more easily. That is why here at Calvary Chapel Orlando, we don't dumb things down for our kids' ministry. In the children's ministry, they learn the Bible. That's what they learn. They learn the Bible in a similar way that we're learning it here, verse by verse through the Scriptures, because they can and do seek God at a very young age. In 2 Chronicles chapter 34, at the very first few words, it mentions to us what Josiah did at the very young age of 34. It says in 2 Chronicles 34, verse 3, for in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet young, he began to seek after the God of David, his father. Eight years old. He made a choice to seek after God. Now, what is You say, okay, okay, so my kids, I can't make excuses for behavior. I need to hold them accountable at a very young age. Yes, that doesn't mean be harsh. You don't be harsh with them. You don't provoke your kids to wrath. The Bible's clear about that. But do not ever teach your kids that sinful attitudes or sinful actions are okay until you get older, until you know better. That is a mistake. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, God gives clear instructions to parents when He tells us like what we're to do with this idea that the Lord is our God and that we're to love Him with all our heart. Deuteronomy 6.4, we have the famous verse, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And then, of course, the greatest commandment that Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And then we got to keep reading, though. Because then Moses goes on to say, and these words which I command you this day shall be in your heart, and you shall teach them diligently unto your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. That's the way God wants us to do it. I've been asked a lot of times as a, as a parent, and you say, you know, so what kind of formal education do you give your kids in spiritual things? And it's like, maybe I'm not a good parent. We didn't do it that way. But man, we talk about the Bible all the time. We're incredibly purposeful that every situation that we come into in conversation with our kids is an opportunity to have a spiritual conversation about what God says. And this has continued as they move through their lives. And sometimes that means you have some of the awkward conversations. Well, Dad, you know, hell seems kind of unfair. Okay, well, let's, let's chat about that. Or maybe as they start getting older and they start moving into some of those complex temptations and challenges that they face as they now have to make, they have to figure out some of life's conundrums on their own. Maybe they don't make some good choices, or maybe they start verbalizing some things, and you're like, as a Christian parent, you're like, ah! No, it's when you engage. Let's talk about what the Bible says. Let's talk about the Lord's character. Let's talk about our character. Let's talk about all these things. Our responsibility is to teach them these things while we're going through life, in the home, 
out and about, wherever we go. And some of my favorite times with all of my kids was the rides home from baseball practice or the ride to church or the ride home from church. Some of the deepest conversations that I've had with my kids are on the ride home from church. They're just quiet for a bit and all of a sudden they say something and then you just, it turns into a conversation, opportunity. And certainly, certainly there are moments when as a parent you're thinking, ooh, I don't have the mental fortitude at this time of night for that type of level conversation. But the point is, that's your kids. That's your kids. Every moment, you got to seize. Every moment, you got to lay down whatever it is you want to do or however you're feeling to go, this is an opportunity to disciple my children. Now, you might be saying, man, I'm the opposite of Josiah. I didn't start seeking the Lord when I was young. Well, whatever your age, if you start seeking the Lord now, it's definitely younger than later right? So why wait? Start seeking Him now. Matthew 6.33, seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you, right? That applies to every age. So you don't have to be eight. It's not like you missed it. I'm nine. Uh Uh-oh, trouble. Wherever you're at right now, seek the Lord. Seek after God. You'll find Him. Interestingly, it mentions that he only reigned for 31 years, which means he died when he was 39. It's not a long, long life. We will see why he dies so young in a later chapter. But next, he points out his influences. He tells us that his mother's name was uh, Jadida, the daughter of Adaiah of Boscoth. I do think it's odd how some of Judah's best kings had some of the worst dads. Because you you have to ask the obvious question, which is, where did Josiah learn to seek the Lord? I mean, growing up, what did he see growing up? Well, he was eight years old when his dad dies. His dad gets the throne from six to eight. So for two years, from the age of six to eight, I mean, he's probably being carted around and being taken to pagan temples and and idols. and I mean, that's all a part of his life. Just down in the, in the valley outside the palace in Tophet, babies are being sacrificed to idols. I mean, this is his life, his upbringing as a young kid. So like, where did he learn to seek the Lord? The Bible doesn't tell us. But I do know this. Mothers were responsible in that culture for a child's spiritual instruction until the age of five. It's not that the dads weren't involved. It's simply that the mom spent more time with the child. They nursed a lot longer back then. Mom spent a lot more time with the child, and therefore they were the ones who had the most influence in those formative years. I don't know if Josiah had a godly mom, but I would be very surprised if he did not, because we already know he didn't have a godly father. The pastoral epistles repeatedly instruct pastors to teach young women to be faithful moms. So, young moms, you ready? Here we go. I realize that the culture tells you that you're more than a mom. You're intelligent, you're capable, you had valuable pursuits prior to having children, so why should you settle for being a babysitter during the prime years of your life? The reason that lies are deceptive isn't because someone walks up to you and goes, the sky is purple or red or you know, whatever color it's not. Lies are deceptive because they are partial truths. 
Mom, you are intelligent. You are capable. And you could likely succeed at a number of life pursuits. But the question I would ask you tonight is, are any of those life pursuits as valuable as investing into your kids? And the Bible gives an emphatic no. It's not just a, you know, this is a good thing to do, but you can choose other things. The Bible gives an emphatic no. There are no other things that are more valuable that you could invest in. One of the conversations that comes up a lot of times in, in planning meetings and stuff is, are we having childcare? One of the things that me and Bev realized when we started having kids was that meant that we didn't get to do the same things we used to do. Beverly, when we first got married, she got invited to speak everywhere. Nobody wanted to hear me. She's a very gifted speaker, and she's cute. I have neither, had neither of those things going for me. But when we started having children, all of her focus started pouring into that. There was no looking for other opportunities. She's incredibly intelligent, very capable. Beverly, I hope she doesn't mind me telling this, but she was a nail technician before we got married. She was high-end. She took care of people. They wanted her to take care of her. She was very gifted, made good money. I don't know where any of it went because she didn't bring it when we got married, but... (laughs) I've always been amazed at how intelligent my wife is, how wise she is, how capable she is. She draws these paintings and pictures from time to time, and I just sit there in awe. When we had kids, there was no pining for anything else. Her heart and everything went into our kids. Our kids are older now, and you know she's doing some of those other things again now. We made a decision before we got married and said, well, what do, what do you want out of life? I said, I know what I want. I said, but what do you want? And she wanted the same thing that I wanted. We wanted to invest into our family, we wanted to have a family. The Bible in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul limits the role of the elder to men, and he explains why. I know this isn't a popular idea, but he says it was because Eve was deceived. But then he has this verse down at the very end of the chapter, and he says, but a woman can be rescued from that that place of influence by the influence she'll have on her kids. That's what he says. But she shall be saved, rescued from the loss through childbirth. And he says something very interesting right after that. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, 25, Paul says, notwithstanding she shall be saved in childbearing, here it is, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. That's possible that you can be a mom but not invest into your family. In Titus chapter 2, verse 4, Paul instructs Pastor Titus, teach the young women in your congregation to invest into their children, to love their children, to love their husbands. Now, the most common objection when I hear a teaching like this or I'm giving a teaching like this is usually kind of a, okay, well, that, that sounds great for all the guys out there. 
You know, my husband can go have a career where he's appreciated and find colleagues who respect him and make friends who love him, yet I'm the one that must decrease. To which I would gently admonish you, there's a lot of self in that objection. The first mark of a disciple is to deny yourself. The problem with the modern idea that you can have it all. In other words, you can have a husband, a kids, a career, hobbies, everything. The problem with that idea is that marriage and family was never designed for anyone in the marriage to have it all. Marriage is about stepping into a sacrificial relationship, one where your goal is to benefit the other and not yourself. If I could have every single person or engaged person read the first chapter of Tim Keller's book on marriage, I would pay to have it printed out and put it in everybody's hands. Because he spends that entire first chapter showing the fallacy of going to try to find someone who fits you. If you're seeking marriage to feel happy or fulfilled, you are either in a disaster or you are headed for one. Marriage is designed by God to be selfless. Now, husbands, single men, you're not getting off. All those principles go for you as well. Work isn't to be an escape from the sacrificial service you're to give to your wife and your kids. The whole idea of coming home should never be a bummer. You say, but Pastor Will, it is a bummer. All I do is I hear complaining, or it just seems like everything's chaos, you know, and I don't understand. Why can't, you know, why can't she just do this? I mean, she's home all day. I have to go to work. Don't ever say that. <laughs> you will be a happier man if you just give your life away and stop trying to find it. I would come home as a, so as a young man, pastoring full-time, I'm working full-time. I got bivocational. I mean, I'm working a lot of hours every week, upwards of 70 hours a week. And I would come home from my secular job, and I was exhausted. And my whole mindset was, I just need like 15 minutes. Now, you come home, and of course, the kids are happy to see you. Wife is happy to see you, right? Because now she's not alone anymore. Now we're a team again, Right? not just that, she's happy to see you because she misses you. At least mine did me. Kids are happy, and I would always kind of be like, Dad just needs like 15, 20 minutes. Now, if you've ever tried to do that, you know what happens during those 15, 20 minutes. Even if you somehow achieve the 15, 20 minutes, it's never fulfilling. Never. There's always frustration because you're trying to preserve the 15 to 20 minutes. I would see the frustration on my wife, the brokenheartedness, how the kids would be disappointed at times. They were little, little at that time. And I remember saying, Lord, I just, I, just, I just need a moment. And the Lord reminded me, when has your wife had a moment all day? These are your children, Will. They're people. They're not a chore. That's your bride. You decided to marry her. And when all of that hit me, 
I just broke. It was kind of the, like the first learning step of saying, Will, just die. Just give your life away. Everything will be better. And that's been like the rest of the journey is just learning how to die more. Like learning how to be okay with that because it's fine. I would come home and the game might be on, whatever. And of course, they're chit-chatting, blah, 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 jumping on you, whatever. And you're like, I'm just, did he score? And, you know, and, and how, that's, that's a stressful life. What's much easier? Not worry about the game and enjoy the time with my kids. My life is so much easier now because I've died a lot of things. Just let them go. I just enjoy what is. Not always pining for what could be. Man, that works in, with your family, it works with your kids, it works with career, it works with the Lord, it works with everything. Just die. It's the first thing I tell young men when they come in, they're saying, I'm thinking about getting married, or they come in for their premarital counseling, they're like, you ready to die? <laughs> I kind of thought this marriage thing was a good thing. It's a great thing. Are you ready to die? Because the, the more you fight that, the more frustrated and miserable you'll be and the more you'll hurt everybody around you. Husbands, wives, you need to stop trying to find your life instead of laying it down. Death is never easy. It's painful sometimes, but I've never, ever seen a dead person stressing out about what they're missing out on. Never. Never. To quote a very wise man named Mr. Incredible, (laughs) your family is your greatest adventure. Don't miss out on it because you're unwilling to give your life away for them. All right, verse (laughs) 2. He gives his evaluation of Josiah's reign he did that which was right, straight, proper. He didn't, he didn't go crooked. He didn't get off God's path. He did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. Jeremiah 22, verses 15 and 16, he gives, the prophet gives his opinion of Josiah because he's talking to Josiah's son. And he goes, do you think God blessed your dad because he's behaving like you? And he explains, your dad was this, 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 and this. He said he ruled according to God's laws. He defended the poor and the needy. He pursued a relationship with the Lord. That's what made him great. The writer shares that opinion. Did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. He walked in all the way of David, his father. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. This was the shortcoming of of even the good kings who came before Josiah. They were good because they didn't worship idols, but they had compromises in their life. Now, The writer's not saying Josiah was perfect because we know David wasn't perfect. But both David and Josiah's heart, their desire of their heart was to follow the Lord all out, 100%. And so because of that, Josiah joins a group that only has two other men in it in in Judah's history, David and Hezekiah. That number makes me sad and also gets my attention because I don't want to settle for being a Uzziah or an Asa or some of these other good kings that had all these asterisks in their history. They were good men. They were successful men. They were even beloved men. But they weren't sold out completely. I want to be like Josiah and David and Hezekiah. 
I want to be like Elijah, whose life was still having an impact after he's gone, right? You throw people on his bones and they come back, to, dead people on his bones and they come back to life. I want to have that kind of an impact, don't you? What did Josiah do that he gets such a glowing review from Jeremiah? Well, 2 Chronicles 34 gives us more details about his early years. It says at age 16, so eight years into his reign, Josiah began to really seek the Lord. Then at age 20, he started purging idolatry. And it's interesting, he doesn't just purge idolatry from his nation. He goes up into the tribal lands of the north that were under Assyrian control, where some Israelites still lived, the northern kingdom people still lived. And he started destroying the idols there too. But it tells us Josiah became like David after something else that happened when he was 26. And that's recorded here in verse 3. And it came to pass in the 18th year of King Josiah that the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, the scribe. He sent him to the house of the Lord, and he said, go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may sum the silver which is brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the door have gathered from the people. So Josiah sends this guy Shaphan, the scribe. A scribe means he was the royal secretary. He'd be responsible for all the government records, accounts, and things like that. So he sends him with instructions for the high priest, and he says, I want you to sum the silver, which means prepare the silver or get the silver ready that you've been collecting, that the keepers of the door have been collecting from the people that they've brought as an offering to the temple. I don't know if these were general offerings that people gave or if it was a special collection similar to what King Joash did when he repaired the temple. But between King Josiah and the high priest, they had set up a a pre-discussed time to save money to repair the temple. And that time has come. And so Josiah sends Shaphan to the high priest to make sure it's handed over to the construction team. So verse 5, he says, And let them deliver it unto the hand of the doers of the work that have the oversight of the house of the Lord. There were different priestly duties that the priestly family had. You had tons of them. They were all over the place. And so some of them had the responsibility of caring for the upkeep of the temple. So these guys were the ones who would be in charge of the construction project to repair the temple. So these guys were chosen to oversee it. Some of the funds would go to them. And then it says, let them give it to the doers of the work, which is in the house of the Lord, to repair the breaches. And then verse 6 says, the other part of the funds would go unto carpenters and builders and masons and to buy timber and hewn stone to repair the house, the temple. So some of it would be given to this group of priests who oversaw the repair project. Some of it would go to the skilled craftsmen who were doing the work. And the goal was to repair the breaches, the damaged areas of the temple. Why was the temple damaged? Well, Hezekiah, his great-grandfather, Josiah's great-grandfather, had stripped the gold off of the structures in the, in the temple to pay tribute to Assyria. Manasseh and Ammon, so grandpa and his dad, they had replaced things in the temple with religious objects to idols. So for 60 plus years, the Lord's stuff had been neglected, had fallen into disrepair. So this was a a building in serious need of help. It's funny, when I first got here almost 10 years ago, our building was in serious need of help. Our church building is not our temple, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? But I don't think that's an excuse to not maintain our church building or to not make it beautiful and welcoming. Part of the wonder for the Jewish people when they would come to the temple is they would get a sense that they were entering a representation of heaven. 
The very presence of God was there, and everything was designed to give you that, that concept that you were entering towards the throne room of God. Like if you were a priest and you were to walk inside the holy place, you know, there would be angels interwoven into the, the walls and everything so that you would look around, and the idea is you're in the throne room of God. So, you know, I was listening to uh, some of these guys who've delved into rabbinical writings and stuff, and they talk about the awe that you know, kids would experience for the first time being at the temple and realizing what's going on, and, and, and the idea of the beauty and the wonder, the concept of you're approaching the presence of God. Every description I've read in the Bible of heaven, whether it's of the temple, which was a replica of heaven, or like the visions of Ezekiel of heaven, or uh, visions and revelation of John of heaven, like every one of them describes it as a place of beauty, holiness, and beauty. Every one of them. Holiness and beauty. No one ever said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, but boy, this is an ugly place. Never. I mean, streets of gold? That's superfluous. Not necessary. And yet, they're there. Our building should never become an idol. But we have sought to create a place here at Calvary Chapel Orlando that communicates both a sense of heaven's holiness and its beauty. A reminder that our home isn't this world. Every time we walk in, our home is the one that's coming. Now, these overseers and these craftsmen, they were appointed to restore that sense of holiness and beauty that people found when they came to the temple. And it tells us here that they were so faithful that they didn't have to keep accounting records with the finances. Howbeit, there was no reckoning, no accounting records made with them about the money that was delivered into their hand because they dealt faithfully, honest. They were trustworthy. And you know, we too, we should be, have a character that's so above accusation that people don't feel the need to go behind us to make sure we're not misusing funds or supplies. Well, as this is going on, Shaphan goes down to do this thing that the king tells him to do. One day, the high priest brings this scribe a discovery, verse 8. And Hilkiah the high priest said unto Shaphan the scribe, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. The word here, find, it, it's very specific. It means to find something by accident. And it's not something new. It's like, I've discovered something. It's to find a thing whose existence was known, but which had for some time been lost to sight. You know you have keys. You know what they look like. You know what they do, but you haven't seen them all day. That's what this word is. I found the keys. I finally laid eyes on them again. And it tells us that what the high priest found was he found, he says, the book of the law. He didn't just find a scroll with a few laws on it. He didn't just find a collection of quotes from Moses. He found the first five books of the Bible, Genesis to Deuteronomy. Why is that significant? The fact that they bring up that they found something that had been lost to vision for a while by accident lets us know just how bad things were in the days of Josiah. You see, it's not that the priests or the king or the people didn't have any idea what God's Word said. Remember, back then, people didn't carry around Bibles like we do today. Making copies was not that easy. Much of what God's people knew came from the teaching that the Levites would give and then later on that the prophets would give. 
While the faithful would have some idea of what God's Word said, God's Word had become so devalued, I mean, so out of print, for lack of a better term, that there were no full copies in circulation. Isn't that crazy? J.P. Lang said, the Scriptures had been lost to public knowledge, and the law existed only as a tradition and a memory. When I hear stories about, we have, you guys know when uh, Pastor Mike Parks comes, and he'll share with us what's going on in the Middle East. He does a lot of recovery disaster ministry all over the world, but predominantly in the Middle East. And he'll share emails with me. He'll just say, hey, well, you know, we've, we've got these group of, of believers in this place, and, and they don't have access to Bibles. Like, that blows me away. I mean, I've got access to Bibles pretty much anywhere I walk, and that's only when I don't have my phone. We are so blessed today. We can get access to a Bible pretty much anywhere. So the question is, do you and I value it? Do we read it regularly? Do we study it? Let's not devalue God's Word like the last few generations of Judah had. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 18 through 20, part of the instructions when Israel got a king was the king was supposed to go down to the priest, get a copy of the law for himself, and then he was to get a copy, and then he would write out. So he he would just get a copy and be like, I've got my copy. No, he would have to borrow a copy, write it all out in his own hand, and then the copy that he made for himself, it was his job to study it regularly so that his heart would never be lifted up against the people he served, so that he would never depart from the right hand or to the left of all of God's commands. So, I don't know if the high priest handed the book to Shaphan so that King Josiah could go make his own copy to read and study. I don't know maybe if the high priest read it and he thought, "Uh, I think the king needs to see this. I don't know why he gives it to Shaphan. But the scribe, when he gets it, he opens it up and he reads it. And when he reads it, he knew the king needed to hear what it said. And so when he comes back to bring his report, he brings up what the high priest found. Verse 9. And Shaphan the scribe came to the king, and he brought the king word again. In other words, he gave his accounting report of the repairs going on. And he said, your servants have gathered the money that was found in the house. They've delivered into the hand of them that do the work, that have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Everything's going according to plan, king. Things are good. And then he says this, verse 10, and Shaphan the scribe showed the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has delivered me a book. And then Shaphan read it, before the king in the king's presence. And it came to pass when the king had heard the words of the book of the law that he rent his clothes. The words. Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away. There won't be one yod or one tittle. Smallest punctuation mark, smallest lettering in the Hebrew language. Not one of those will pass away. Heaven and earth will, but all of those are important. Every marking that was recorded is important. You see, it's not just the concepts or the ideas of the Bible that matter. Every word in the Bible matters. And that's why we place such heavy emphasis on teaching verse by verse through the entire Bible. It's not our ideas about the Bible that matter. It's God's every word, every word, all of them 
they matter. Now, I want to give you a demonstration today of what tearing your clothes looks like. <laughs> Just kidding. Tearing one's clothes is never a casual action. Never. That just never happens casually. You don't just wake up and go, you know what? Yeah, there we go. I'm ready. All right, I'm going to go take my shower. No, it's not a casual action. I mean, even if he was like a, you know, a WWE guy and used to ripping his shirt or whatever, you know, even if he's wearing easily ripped clothing, the emotion invoked in such behavior is intense. You know, when you're ripping your clothes, I don't even know if I have the physical strength to rip my clothes. Like, there'd have to be an intense amount of emotion going on there. That type of behavior, when someone says they rip their clothes in the Bible, it usually it was stemming from a deep anxiety or heartbreak or terror. And in this case, probably all three. What caused such an intense reaction from King Josiah, verse 12? And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Hikim the son of Shaphan and Akbor the son of Micaiah and Shaphan the scribe and Asahiah, a servant of the kings, saying to them, Go you, all you need to go, inquire the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that is found, for great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not hearkened unto the words of this book to do according unto all that which is written concerning us. When you see him command this group of individuals, you can't send higher-ranking people than these guys. These are all part of his staff, part of his rank, you know, high-ranking people in his staff and his government. And yet, even though that's the case, I'm guessing he probably picked these men because he trusted their relationship with the Lord that they would genuinely fulfill their task, which is you need to go find out what we're supposed to do because we have messed up big time. The word inquire means to consult, find out, to petition. Petition the Lord if there's anything we can do. Find out what the Lord wants us to do. Find out what His thoughts are about where we're at. Because He says all of us are guilty. Me, the people, all of Judah. No one's exempt. All of us are guilty of violating what this book says, and it's been going on for a long time. And so He says God must be so very angry with us for what we've done. Can you imagine what it would be like if you're Josiah, you, you, like you love God, you've been trying to follow Him for 10 years, you bring reforms in your nation, good spiritual reforms, but then you hear the Bible read to you for the first time. Can you imagine what that was like? I mean, Genesis wouldn't be so bad, right? Be like, oh, I'm, all the stories I've been heard my whole life, you know, and about these guys, now I'm getting all the details. And then Exodus, you know, the start would be an awesome reminder of what, what God did for your people, setting you free. But then you would hit the Passover instructions, and you'd probably think to yourself, what's the Passover? Then you get to the Ten Commandments that came right after God's instructions about the Passover and Exodus, followed by the book of Leviticus. Conviction would hit hardcore. And then you'd Read about all the times God judged the nation for their bad attitude in numbers, and they had to wander around for 38 years in the desert. And then you'd close it with Deuteronomy, which would be a, re, a recall to follow God's commands. And you realize you've done so little of what God said to do, 
and so much of what he said not to do. Getting to the end of Deuteronomy and hearing God's promise in Deuteronomy that God would remove the nation if they persisted in idolatry must have been terrifying for Josiah. Because he's looking at it and he's going, this is us. I, I see our whole history right here. I see grandpa. I see dad. I see where we're at right now. We're on final stage. Like I looked through everything God said he'd do and everything's already happened except this last thing. You would realize that exile is the only tool God had left to get your attention. He says God's wrath is great. It means a, a large quantity or of a collection. It's been building up over the years, and we've done nothing to diminish it. There would certainly be a sense of we're doomed. That's why he says we need to find out what God wants us to do. We are so blessed that we have a Bible in front of us. We have God's promises. We have God's warnings. And we must never ignore those things because if we do, we can become dull to them. In Hebrews chapter 4, we read in our Scripture reading that He, he warned them. If not, we, God's given us precious promises too. Let's not be like them who didn't enter into them. And He explains, for the Word of God is alive. It's powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Cuts all through the, the garbage that we are, our emotions and all that kind of stuff, and it gets right to the heart of the part of us that fellowships with God, our spirit. God's work will still work if we will trust it. So Josiah is trying to find anything that he could do. Go find out. Well, verse 14, so... Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam and Akbor and Shaphan and Asahiah went unto Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikva, the son of Harhas, who was keeper of the wardrobe. And it explains why they went to her, because now she dwelt in Jerusalem in the college, and they went and communed with her. They talked with her. I'm not sure why they went to Huldah instead of Jeremiah. The only thing that we can gather here is that Jeremiah didn't, we know Jeremiah didn't live in Jerusalem. So, it mentions the proximity. It says that she was in the college. It's a bad translation. That means the second district of the city of Jerusalem. So probably they went there because she was the quickest person they could get to. That's how serious Josiah took this and they, how, how serious these guys took. So they go to this woman, hold of the prophetess. Now, when we look at the scriptures, Moses' sister Miriam and Deborah from the book of Judges are both called prophetesses in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, a woman named Anna, and then we have Philip's daughters, they are also called prophetesses in the New Testament. Then we see in the book of 1 Corinthians that Paul gives rules to the Corinthians for when a woman prophesies in the church. So, I mean, from start to finish, we, we see that a woman, women were allowed to function in this calling and in this gift all throughout the Bible. We see that in the Scriptures. Now, I need to point out that a prophet's role was different from a priest or a Levite's role. You need to understand that. This is where people get all, I, I, I will tell you, it is very frustrating, you know, when I, I'll talk about what the Bible has to say about elders, pastors, and, you know, what, what is, can a woman be a pastor and elder? And it's not frustrating answering that. I'm happy to answer that. Let's go to the Bible. But it's frustrating to always hear one of the first things about, what about Deborah? And I'm like, there is no existence of Pastor Deborah. <laughs> yes, but she was a judge. That's debatable. 
doesn't call her a judge. It says that she judged people's cases, but it doesn't mean that she was an official like ruler. Maybe she was, maybe she wasn't. I'm not saying. But judge is not a pastor. But she was a prophetess. Correct. But prophetess is not a Levite or a priest. In the same way, when we look in the New Testament, that a prophet's role was different from an elder or a pastor's role. The word prophetess, it means a woman who speaks or proclaims a message from a deity. Of course, in the Scripture, from the Lord. Prophets and prophetesses did not spend the majority of their time predicting the future. They weren't like the Oracle of Delphi. That's not what they did. Their messages were mainly designed to warn people, to comfort people, to strengthen people, or to get people moving. That's what Deborah did, right? The Lord says, go tell Barak, get going. 1 Corinthians 14.3 says that the result of the gift of prophecy when it's in operation is we're either edified, strengthened in our faith, we're exhorted, moved to take action, or we're comforted. Consistent throughout the Scripture, what prophecy does and what the role of a prophet is. So, what we conclude from that is speaking God's messages to God's people to strengthen them, warn them, encourage them, comfort them, or get them moving was never a role just for men in the Bible. The role of a teacher over God's people, however, Levite, that was their job in the Old Testament, pastor in the New Testament, that role was and still is limited to men. What does that mean? Well, it means none of us should ever dismiss an exhortation or edifying words or warning or comforting words from someone who's a woman. Some of the people over the course of my life who've spoken into my life the most have been godly women. I can't tell you how many times, you know, I've had a godly woman say, God put me on my heart, I've been praying for you, and I wanted to share this with you. And I was like, wow, that's definitely the Lord. And I'm so grateful for those individuals. I have seen many men from times ignore and reject words of counsel or an exhortation or encouragement or comfort or warning because there was a woman telling me that. What do you mean? She's your sister. Do you not have conversations with your sister in real life? We can uphold biblical roles for men and women and still receive from the opposite gender. We will never ordain a woman here as a pastor. But ladies, please don't keep your mouths quiet because well, I'm a lady. I'm very glad for the ladies who minister through these types of gifts in our church. I'm very glad for the people in the body of Christ who've done those things. I'm so grateful. I would probably not be doing as well as I am today if it weren't for so many ladies who've spoken in my life over the years. And my guess would be, if you're doing well, you too. One of the funnest days of my life was when a man, Beverly, was challenging a man about something because he was talking about his family and he was doing this and this. And she goes, well, that's not biblical. You, you know, this is what the Bible says. And he says, you do, why are you talking to me like that? You need to submit to me, woman. And she looked at him and said, you're not my husband. Oh, I, could, I was just beaming, like watching it from a distance. I'm like, you don't know who you're messing with, bro. <laughs> You've got church on your side. She's got the Bible. <laughs> church tradition, I should say. When someone who's a woman speaks, we should ponder it, pray about it just like we would anybody else. 
because God might very well be speaking to you through them. And Huldah had shown herself to be a reliable messenger from God, so they, they go to her to find out what God would say to Josiah about all this. And what's her message? Is there any hope for Josiah and his people? Verse 15, and they, she said unto them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, tell the man that sent you to me, thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring evil upon this place. Evil not in the sense of wicked things. Evil here means calamity or ruin. Behold, pay attention, this is important. I am going to bring calamity and ruin upon Jerusalem and upon all the people who live here, even all the words of the book which the king of Judah has read. Why? Because they have forsaken me. They've burned incense to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath shall be kindled against this place and shall not be quenched. She says to him, she goes, Josiah, everything you've read is going to happen. You're right to be concerned because I am going to act on what I said I would do. I will be faithful to my promise because instead of heeding my words, my people have thrown me away. That's what it means to forsake. They've thrown me away. Everything you've read, Josiah, all the curses are going to happen because my people have violated the covenant they made with me. Now, I can only imagine being part of the delegation there. It's like, man, there's, there's no hope in that. And truthfully, if God's message stopped there, this would be a horribly depressing message to take back to Josiah. You're right, king, we're doomed. But it's not the end of the message. Verse 18, she says, but I've got another message. That's the one to all the people. It's interesting, she calls the king to tell the man in verse 15 because she's speaking to the nation now. But then in verse 18, she says, but to the king of Judah, which sent you to inquire the Lord, thus shall you say to him. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, as touching the words which you heard, in other words, verses 15 through 17, what you just heard, that judgment is indeed coming, touching those words, she says, because your heart was tender and you have humbled yourself before the Lord. When you heard what I spoke against this place and against the inhabitants thereof, that, that, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and because you tore your clothes and you wept before me, I also have heard you, says the Lord. I'm so glad that there are two becauses in this message. God deals with nations, He deals with groups of people, but He also deals with individuals. And if an individual wants to follow Him, the Lord will bless that individual. She says, because your heart was tender. The word there means to be responsive, to not be hard, to obey, to be submissive. Because you've humbled yourself. Again, it means to have an attitude of submission to authority, to adopt a recognition of your low status and to submit to the one who has the high status. When Shaphan read the, the law to Josiah, he could have responded in many ways. I mean, he could have responded with indifference. I don't care. He could have responded with unbelief. I don't believe any of that stuff. It's not real. Hocus pocus, fairy tales. He could have responded with resentment. Lord, that's not fair. It's not my fault. He could have responded with anger like a lot of people in power do when you confront them. Who are you to tell me that? But instead, Josiah recognized that his status as king was low in comparison to the Lord's status and to the Lord's word's status. And so by tearing his clothes and weeping over their disobedience, he places himself in the proper place. 
Lord, I may be a king, but you're the king of kings who has always been faithful to us. You kept your covenant with us, and you deserve way better than what we've given you. In James chapter 4, verse 6, it says that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The Lord longs to show us grace. And when we make a request for grace coupled with a proud heart, that's a contradiction. God, be good to me because I deserve it. Or it's not fair. Humbling myself, being responsive to God's correction, that opens the floodgates of grace that God just is always wanting to pour out on us. And so she says, because you heard and you responded that way, I heard. And that's how our relationship with God is supposed to work. God speaks, we humbly receive, and then God hears when we cry out to him for more grace. So she says, verse 20, therefore, behold, because you've received my word, humbled yourself, you sought for my grace, I will gather you unto your fathers, and you'll be gathered unto your grave in peace. You won't die from judgment, Josiah, and your eyes shall not see all the evil which I will bring upon this place. And so they brought word, the king word again, they brought him her words. The king's repentance isn't enough to stop judgment from coming, but it can forestall it can forestall it. This personal message to Josiah is very similar to Isaiah's message to Hezekiah. But again, Josiah's response is very different than Hezekiah's. Hezekiah says, well, the fact that it won't happen in my day, that's good news, right? Yeah, that's good news. But Hezekiah just kind of accepts it, and he doesn't seem to make any changes to remedy the problem. In contrast, When we continue studying Josiah, we're going to see that he dedicates the rest of his life, the rest of his reign, to Judah's covenant relationship with God. Their covenant relationship with God will be at the forefront of everything Josiah does, and there will be no compromises. You see, Josiah's goal was to lead the people to emulate his tender heart, in order that it might not just be forestalled in his lifetime, but that they could keep it off as long as possible. And because of that, the Bible will say about Josiah that there was no king, not even David, who kept the law like he did. So, to close it out tonight, whether you're influential in society or not, whether you're a mom or a dad, you're single or married, the question is the same. Is your heart tender to the Lord? Do you receive his word humbly when he speaks? And do you look to live it out? Are you submitted to him? And if Josiah can do it in the awful last days of his generation, we can do it in the last days of the age of grace. Amen? Let's all stand. Lord, we thank you for this insight into your view of Josiah's heart, his attitude toward you, toward your word. And Lord, we want that. So Lord, if, if, 
Maybe we've devalued your word, or maybe, maybe we've been hard-hearted about something. Maybe we've been stubborn about something. Or, or maybe, Lord, we've been indifferent. Or maybe we've responded to something you say in unbelief. That won't work for me. It won't work for my marriage. It won't work for, for my family, or my job, or my situation. Whatever it might be, Lord, if there's any of these things that are not like Josiah tonight and how he responded to your word, to your character, well then, Lord, we just want to repent. Lord, we're not going to all rip our clothes, but we, we want to repent. And we want to turn to you and say, Lord, we need grace. We want to go in a different direction. Where do you want us to go, Lord? Lord, forgive us if necessary. Fill us with your Holy Spirit and empower us to go from here submitted to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.